Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural, and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Dr. Sean McDowell joins me for today's conversation. Sean is an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's a gifted communicator, passionate about equipping the church to make the case for the Christian faith. Sean is the co-host for the Think Biblically podcast, one of the most popular podcasts on faith and cultural engagement, and he has written several books, including Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Now, in this episode, Sean and I spent time discussing scripture passages related to homosexuality, including counterpoints that are often made in relation to these key passages. Sean shares how we can respond to culture and politics as it relates to the LGBTQ community and why compassion and listening are vital if we are to honor Christ's calling on our lives. This is an essential conversation you'll definitely want to pass along to others. So now let's jump into my conversation with Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. So good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Jason. Now, now Sean... There is a natural tension that we as, as Christ followers and as ministry leaders have in our lives as we attempt to hold to our convictions, right, while at the same time showing people compassion. We want to, to love people as Christ has loved people. We want to um, honor God in the things that we do, the things that we say, the way we live our lives, the way we conduct our, our ministry. Um, when we're looking at the the conversation around LGBTQ plus and the church and how, how we um, enter into that. How do we best handle this tension between compassion and conviction or, or posture and position 
um, in a way that really honors God and respects others? I think we got to keep a couple things in mind. Number one, we have to be very clear on what scripture teaches. I see some people responding in an unbiblical fashion because I don't know other way to put it than I think they waffle on what scripture teaches. So knowing what scripture teaches and why it teaches it, I think gives us some conviction to resist some of the narratives being pushed so fervently and nonstop in television, social media, and Netflix, our educational system. So we actually have to know what scripture teaches and why. But second, we have to approach it with a recognition that this is a messy conversation. There's not always easy answers. I get emails basically daily, Jason, or people saying this scenario, this scenario, what do I do? And I do my best to help people weigh them. But sometimes it's like Jesus with the rich young ruler, like this person may walk away. You mm. can't control the situation the way we want it to. But what we can control is that we're committed to scripture, but we're committed to loving people sacrificially. It's not the most important thing to be right. It's not the most important thing to win a theological issue. It's important to humble ourselves and just love and listen and be present in people's lives in the way that Jesus was. Yeah, I think that's so important. And in your most recent book, Chasing Love, you uh, you share a story in there in regard to um, you were you were asked to be a calling guest on a major cable news outlet, and the topic I think it was around. Um, uh, transgender, I think it had to do with um, yeah. Bruce Jenner, you know, and uh -huh. Jenner, that conversation. And I remember you you, you shared a story in in your book about how you were uh, how you were approaching this out of compassion. Um, but but there was an interesting outcome to that story. Can you kind of share that that story just briefly? Because I think that kind of helps yeah. frame a lot of like how we can lead with love, but the culture doesn't. Um, says they want us to lead with love, but sometimes when we do, that's not what they want us to do, right? Yeah, that, well, part of the reason for that is because our culture has a very different understanding and definition of what love is. Mm. That's often why we talk past one another with non with non-believers or members of the LGBTQ community. They're understanding love as affirming whoever people are identifying as. And we're saying, no, actually love is acting in one's best objective interest whether the person recognizes it or not. So there's a tension there. But in this case, I was invited to come into CNN, didn't work out. So the guy goes, hey, let me let me have you call in. And I was like, okay, sure. He goes, what's, what's your position? This was on a show. So this must have been about 2015 mm -hmm. with the Caitlyn Jenner transition to Bruce Jenner. And it was right around the Obergefell Supreme Court ruling decision. And before calling in, the producer was screening me, I guess. And he says, what's your position? And as best as I can remember, Jason, it was just something like, Jesus loves transgender people. This community is hurting. We need to calm down and not just make this into a political issue, but try to find a way to lock arms across the political divide and help this vulnerable community. I mean, something like that. And there's a pause and he goes, man, I can't have you on. You're much too compassionate. <laughs> And it just, it hit me first off. I was like, oh, I'm such a rookie. Like, what am I doing? I'm actually <laughs> trying to help this situation. And my son and I watch it. He was 11 at the time. And it, this program was just a circus. It was about ratings. So when you look at uh, elite, in, like educational institutions, you look at the media, you look at places like 
CNN or other media organizations, they have a narrative and a worldview and an ideology they're pushing. I don't think most people who are wrestling with, say, gender dysphoria are pushing this, this transgender ideology. That's where we just need to show love, show compassion, listen to people, and just humble ourselves and be present in their lives. Yeah, that, that, that's good. Now, Sean, you, you started by saying one of the most important things for us as believers, as those who are following Jesus, is to have, have a, a good understanding of Scripture, right? And so there has been lots of conversation, um, not just outside the church, but definitely within the church, even more so in regard to um, how Scripture relates to this entire conversation, right? Homosexuality and those types of things. So I want to ask you if you would just take some time to help walk us through Scripture. Because throughout history, people have been known to interpret Scripture in a number of ways to support a variety of perspectives, right? And so how can we look at Scripture in a way that that really honors um, the truth of Scripture? What are some of those key passages that speak to homosexuality? And what can we actually take away from that um, doing, doing good exegesis? Because again, there have been different interpretations of a lot of these key passages. So can you share with us um, what you see in Scripture and how you hold to those convictions of, of what you see? Yes, I can. Since I know a lot of pastors listen to this, let, let me say first that I went to a affirming conference in 2014 that's designed to transform the church from within training people how to have conversations to challenge their conservative friends and their views of what the Bible says about same-sex unions. And when I first went, Jason, I was blown away at the sophistication at the arguments. And for a while, I was a little unsettled, like, my goodness, what if I'm wrong about this? Well, with an open mind, I spent thousands of hours reading, talking, researching, watching this. And I think those arguments in many ways remind me of Genesis 3, did God really say like, there's always a way around scripture if you want to, but there's a reason why from the left to the right within the church and within Judaism, there was unanimous agreement about what marriage is supposed to be. There was debate about divorce, what grounds justified in the history of the church, hence the response of Jesus in Matthew 19. But there's no debate that marriage is a sexed institution meant to be between one man and one woman, and that sex is to be experienced in that context. Now, why? We'll go back to Genesis 1, 27. It says God makes them male and female, multiply, fill the earth. We learn right away that one purpose of sex and marriage is to multiply, fill the earth. And God made us male and female as intrinsically sexed beings. Go to Genesis 2. What does it say? It says man leaves his father and mother, which says God's original design for marriage is one mom and one dad. Again, it's a sexed institution. Man leaves his father and mother and clings or bonds with his wife. So we're talking about marriage and the two shall become one. So the means of populating and filling the earth from Genesis 1:27 to 24 explicitly tells us is through the institution of marriage, which is one man and one woman for life. Now, when you go to passages like Leviticus 18, I realize there's a lot of background information we have to do here. But if you look closely at the language, it says, a man shall not lie with another male as with a female. 
it's language reminiscent of the original creation account. We see this pattern through scripture that we are to look back at God's original design for sex and marriage as having continued relevance in our lives in terms of our choices. So flip forward to the New Testament. Take Jesus in Matthew 19. He's asked about what are permissible grounds for divorce. What does Jesus do? He quotes Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female. Then he quotes Genesis 2.24, man shall of his father and mother bond with his wife. And then Jesus says, of course, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus held the view of marriage that God created it at the beginning as a sexed institution meant to be one man and one woman. And that is the context for sexual activity. That's God's design for marriage. Go forward to Romans chapter one. We see in Romans 1, 18, all the way really through 26, the classic passage where, where Paul, you know, distinctly talks about uh, people denying God in creation. Then he gives a reference to women abandon the natural function with a man and engaged in unnatural relations with another. Males did the same. Well, if you look in the context of that passage, the passage is about creation, <laughs> that God has revealed himself in creation, people know generally, and we see that creation also distinctly in the human body, but people deny it. So I think scripture is very clear from Genesis all the way through the end, what God's intended design for sex and marriage is. Now, of course, people don't follow it, just read the Old Testament, but that we can't confuse what the Bible describes with what the Bible prescribes. So I think the consistent pattern in scripture is to point back towards God's creation in the beginning, that marriage is meant to be one man and one woman who become one flesh for one lifetime. And that is the outlet for sexual activity and all other sexual activity outside of that context is wrong and immoral and really abandons God's design for male and female. Yeah, that, that's that's a great summation, and I'm going to um, kind of talk through with you and kind of push back on some of the arguments and, and some of the, you know the things that we hear, especially from from you know a perspective of affirming um, same sex marriage or, or relationships, and uh, you know one of those would be. Well, Leviticus says what Leviticus says, but Leviticus says a lot of other things, and it's a lot of things that we we have moved on from or that we do not hold true to. So how do you respond to if someone's pulling out the Leviticus passage and saying, yeah, well, there are other things in Leviticus that we don't do. So how do you respond to that? So first off, in conversation with somebody, I'm not going to bring in Leviticus as a passage I turn to. I'm bringing this in to show the larger systematic theology that consistently points back towards creation. I'm going to go to Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to go to Jesus in Matthew 19, and I'm going to go to Romans chapter 1. Now, it's true. Some things in Leviticus we don't follow anymore. But there's also certain things in Leviticus, like do not murder, do not steal, that we do follow. So the question is, is the passage on not having same-sex sexual activity a part of the continuing commands of God. Well, one way to look at this is it's repeated in the New Testament. So we know that's still normative. But I also think if you read Leviticus 18, the passage opens and it ends where God says to the people, he says, don't do the 
the immoral wrong things they do in the Canaanites, in the Egyptians, and the Hittites. And then you have Leviticus 18. And then at the end, it repeats and says, don't do these wicked things again. In other words, the Hittites were not condemned for not keeping the Passover, but they were condemned for their sexual immorality. And I think this passage in Leviticus 18 falls in the context of the kind of condemnations that were given on other nations that they should have known. Why? Because of God has revealed himself in nature and in the human body, as Paul describes in Romans chapter one. Okay, excellent. Um, very helpful. So um, let's move to the New Testament. Let's move to the Romans passage, for example. Um, some would argue if you um, you know do a thorough exegesis of that passage and you look at the original language that the word used there is not speaking of just a, a general uh, you know, homosexual relationship, but it's uh, more pointed. It's, it's speaking to a, an abusive um, type of relationship that took place between men and uh, oftentimes younger, younger teenage boys and that sort of thing that was present in the first century and, sure. you know, in the culture at that time. And so the argument is that that's really what Paul was speaking out against. Can you speak to that argument? Yeah, there's two problems with that. Number one, it says men having sex with men. It doesn't say men having sex with boys. Now, that's an English translation, mm -hmm. so it doesn't precisely line up with the Greek, but that is the most accurate translation because both seem to be condemned if you read further to the end of Romans chapter one. They both are condemned. But second, and to me, this is the death knell for this argument, it says men likewise engaged in unnatural behavior. Men are doing the unnatural behavior that the women did. So whatever the women are doing, the men are doing. There was no female equivalent of pederasty. In other words, there was no equivalent of women having sex with girls. So if women were not engaging in this and men were doing what women were doing, then clearly in this case, Paul is not talking about pederasty, men having sex with boys. Yeah, very helpful. Um, another argument, and, and you've touched on this a little bit, another argument is, well, Jesus is who we're following, and Jesus never specifically spoke against homosexuality. How would you respond to that one? Well, in Mark 7, he condemns sexual immorality, which is porneia, mm -hmm. and the vast majority of scholars would say porneia was the range of sexually immoral behavior outside of the married context. So that would involve adultery, that would involve incest, and that would involve same-sex sexual behavior as it's cited in Leviticus 18. So that's indirect, but I also think it's pretty clear that Jesus did speak to it. Second, he affirms the creation account in Matthew 19, like we talked about. He affirms that marriage is a sexed institution that's permanent and that by affirming one original creation account, he's telling us how God designed it to be. Excellent. V very helpful. Very helpful, Sean. Now, um, one of the things that you mentioned is that if you were in conversation with just an individual uh, about this, as opposed to, you know, looking at this from the perspective of, hey, we're pastors, we're ministry leaders, let's kind of, you know, process through this and, and have a firm understanding, or if we're studying on our own as a Christ follower, having a firm understanding of the scripture. But if you're actually in a conversation, um, you have, you, you care about someone deeply in your life um, who's wrestling with this type of a thing. 
how, how would you approach that conversation? You touched a bit on this, but, but I'd love to hear how would you approach that conversation with someone you care about, someone you love, and, and really help them to see the, the, both the truth of Scripture, but also hear the love that Christ has for them in the midst of that. I would actually spend a ton of time listening. I, I've done this with students. I just say, hey, can I ask you some questions? Because I want to understand as best I can what you're going through. Typically, they'll say, I've never had somebody say no. <laughs> can, you, can you share with me the first time you really felt like you had same-sex attraction? What did it take for you to get the point to tell somebody? Who did you tell first? What are some helpful ways people have responded? What are some unhelpful ways? How has this changed your relationship with others, with God? Has this changed your understanding of scripture? I just want to listen and understand and show the person I'm not threatened by this. I love you through this. I'm committed to you. And we're going to work this through together. So I would just, I would lead with asking a ton of questions and listening and not rushing to like, well, look at Romans 1 and Matthew 19. Like most likely if you're in relationship with this person, they're Christian, they have a sense where the biblical position points. So you just want to patiently get there. Now, one thing I try to do in the right time is I want to introduce people who are struggling with this to other Christians who I think are struggling well. So I mean, people like Christopher Yuan mm -hmm. has same-sex attraction, but talks about the beauty of singleness, faithful to what scripture teaches. It's people like Christopher Yuan, Rachel Gilson, who has same-sex attraction, is married, and I think is staying faithful amidst this. So in the right time and right way, I'm going to introduce somebody to other people they can relate to and understand and connect with. Yeah, that, that's that's super helpful. Now, Sean, what are your thoughts on approaching LGBTQ issues and, and the community as a whole in terms of the culture war? There's a lot of conversation around a culture war. Is, is the idea of the culture war ever a helpful framework for pastors and ministry leaders when they're addressing topics like this? Well, that term, and I think you're indicating this, has a lot of baggage. I think it brings us back to certain things in the 80s and the 90s that created us versus them, drawing a line in the sand, we're going to win this. And I, that's not the framework through which I look at this. I look at cultural instances that happen and I always ask myself, how do I use this as an opportunity to show God's love, number one, to the outside world, and second, to talk to young people about the faith and train them? So it came up not too long ago that the story about Captain America is gay. <laughs> in the comic books, there's it's not Steve Rogers. It's not in the movies as far as we know. But I guess the shield gets carried by different people while Steve Rogers is trying to get it back. And this gay teenager picks it up and defends the LGBTQ runaways. Well, one thing that's interesting is that when Captain America began in 1941, the bad guys were the Nazis. In this comic, it's going to be anyone who contributes to the runaway of LGBTQ kids. And we're told in our culture that that is conservative Christians and the church. So that's a very eye-opening shift. But second, I wrote a blog on it and I said, hey, like, how do we show love to this community? Let's not freak out. Let's use this as an educational opportunity. I talked to my kids about it. I talked about it in the classroom. 
like instead of just getting on our podiums and ranting, Hollywood is going secular and here they go pushing a gay agenda. Like it just, it doesn't help. So part of my blog was like, look, I have a different worldview than obviously Marvel does, but they're actually trying to help kids. Can we have some sympathy? They have a misguided understanding of what it means to be human and how to help, but they're operating from a heart to help. If we come out defensive and fighting, we just alienate ourselves. Now, of course, I'm not saying we don't stand for truth. I'm not saying any of that, but I think we'd be much better today to try to lead with compassion, lead with understanding, lead with listening, calm down some of the rhetoric. And I think we'd have a much better opportunity to speak into people's lives about the gospel, which is frankly what matters most when it's all said and done. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's such a good example. Now, when it comes to um, legislation, you know, we kind of we kind of step it up from what the culture is, is doing, what the culture is producing, as you shared a great example there. But then we have legislation as well. You know, we, we have our government here. We have things like the Equality Act. We have bills that reject transgender or restrict rather transgender individuals, you know, student athletes, those types of things. Uh, when it comes to legislation, where, where where do we find our our place as as ministry leaders as pastors? Um, how would you recommend we approach kind of not just the cultural things, but but those things that move into legislation and governing? So, because I'm a Bible professor and a minister, I don't lead with fighting political battles. I think we lose some authority in the minds of people when it becomes about who we elect and passing particular bills, and we lose the larger focus of what we're trying to do. So if you follow me on Twitter or whatever other social media or my blog, I'm not pushing or promoting certain political positions. Now, with that said, we did a lengthy podcast on the Equality Act with an expert, Caleb Kaltenbach. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is it? How does this threaten religious liberty? How are churches going to respond? We need to talk about these things and educate these things. But with that said, I think we need to thoughtfully and wisely support people who are defending religious liberty, not because it's just our religious liberty. It should be the religious liberty of everybody. It's because religious liberty is the first liberty and right we have in the Constitution, and it's actually an objective good for society. It is. So people being able to make decisions about what they believe about the ultimate questions, does God exist? Is there a right and wrong? What does it mean to love my neighbor? And being able to live out those convictions, that is a pre-political right that it's the government's job to recognize. So I, I'm not going to be pushing legislation from my platform, but I'm going to be drawing people to resources. I'm going to be educating people. I'm going to support people who are in the political and legal realm who are fighting for rights. And I just have to be careful. I ask myself, am I fighting for this just because I don't want bio university where I teach to go under? <laughs> am I fighting for this because I don't want my church to get shut down? Or am I really looking and saying what's best for the gospel? What's objectively best for society? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to ask. So I guess in some, we need to educate people very well. We need to lead. Like, like when I interviewed Caleb Kaltzbeck on, again, in the Equality Act, the first thing he said, he goes, I'm not afraid. He goes, God is sovereign. 
our response to fear is to love people, but we have to be quick. We have to operate and do what is best for society and trust God through it. So that's kind of the balance that I try to keep as best I can. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's excellent, Sean. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, uh, especially in the climate we find ourselves now, it's one of the things that, that makes issues um, such as these, you know, how, how do we how do we minister in the midst of, um, you know, challenging times or trying to figure out and, and there's there's a sense that we are, we're losing so much. But I think stepping back and saying, listen, God is still God and God is still faithful. God could still be trusted it is a, a very important place for us to, to, to cling to as a foundation um, because as, as you said, it's, it shouldn't be things that are simply out of fear and, and that somehow we feel like we have to defend God. Um, but what is it that um, our convictions, what do we hold to be true? What do we know to be true about God? And if God loves all of creation, every man, every woman, every child, then we need to be thinking about how do we respond to things around us in a way that is honoring God's love as you said, for, for not just people who uh, hold to our religious beliefs, but, you know, freedom of religion for others, because every single one of those people is an, uh, a person that Jesus died for, and we have the opportunity Amen. to share his hope with them, right? Uh, that, that's, that's so good. Uh, one of the things that, that I love that you do, you've shared that you're a professor, so you spend a lot of time with young people, but you continue to teach a high school Bible class um, because you want to stay fresh and, and, and kind of interact with high school students on a regular basis. What are you observing that teenagers are dealing with now um, in the areas of sexuality and especially the LGBTQ issues? So let me answer this question, but maybe in a little different way than you're, you're expecting, sure. because he, here's something I want listeners to view. I'm convinced from the research on Gen Z, my work with students and being in the classroom, that even our best kids in Christian schools, Christian homes, and churches are far more influenced by a secular understanding of the world than they are by a biblical view, hands down. And I'll give you one example. I recently went to a group of high school students. Uh, there was maybe 12, there's about a dozen students, juniors and seniors. And I simply said, hey, can you define for me who is truly free? What does it mean to be a person who's free? And they said, freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. That's what freedom is. I said, okay, paint a picture of the person for me who's most free. And they're like, well, a person alone on an island who can do anything they want to do. I said, okay, if God exists... Would that change our understanding of freedom? They talked amongst themselves, came back, and they said, well, if God exists, freedom's doing whatever you want to do without restraint, but now there's consequences. Now, just think about that. The only component God adds to the nature of freedom is consequences, which doesn't sound very positive and optimistic and compelling <laughs> to me. Now, I won't go into right now, but I had a conversation over the hours saying that they understand freedom from if you're tied down or in prison and restrained, you, you lack what's called negative freedom, but they don't understand positive freedom. For example, when I understand what my smartphone is designed for, and then I use it accordingly, I'm set free. It's not a baseball bat. It's not a scuba tank. 
I've got to understand it's designed and used accordingly. Well, according to scriptures, we're designed to be in relationship with God and in relationship with other people. If that's true, that means the least free person on the planet is somebody alone on an island without the relationships God has designed us to have. And if we learned anything during quarantine, it's that we suffer without face-to-face relationships. So my point, Jason, is if you look at the data, the number of kids who don't think your biological sex and gender must stay linked within the Christian church is surprising. The number of kids who look at pornography and their ethic is shaped by pornography is surprising to many church leaders. The number of kids who just have secular ideas about love and identity and freedom. So if we don't, number one, strip away these secular ideas and make them aware of it because they're like a fish in water. They don't even realize it and then start to replace it with biblical truth and why scripture teaches what it teaches and why scripture's designs are for our good. Like David in Psalm 19 says, he rejoices in the law of the Lord. Uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 10 says, these laws are for your good. If we don't help students see that, we will give our sermons, which they hear 30 minutes a week compared to seven to 10 hours a day of media pumping into them and have no real lasting effect in their worldview and on the way they live when it comes to sex, love, and relationships. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's super helpful. Uh, Sean, it's been so good to be with you. I, I want to give you a couple opportunities as we kind of close down this conversation. Um, first is... You have the ears of, of our colleagues, pastors, ministry leaders listening in right now. Um, is there any uh, additional uh, advice or encouragement uh, that you'd like to leave with them when it comes to navigating um, the LGBT community, how we as a church um, respond and minister and um, honor God? Yeah, here's what I would say. Don't practice what you preach preach what you practice. In other words, if we want to talk about loving the LGBTQ community, go out and find people wherever they are in your community and build relationships with them. And not as a project, just invite someone over for dinner who's in a same-sex relationship. Go find whatever clubs or meetings or organizations and just say, hey, I'm a pastor. I love you. I'm just here to listen and learn. I mean, they'll freak out that you even come on their turf. But then you can start to model for your church very carefully and respectfully. Hey, let's all do this. This makes me uncomfortable, but I want God to soften my heart. I specifically had a youth pastor who was asked to be an LGBTQ club advisor, a friend of mine at a public school. And a lot of people would say no, but he's like, sure. I said, why'd you say yes? He said, because I wanted to hang out with these kids. Long story short, four of them came to his youth group. Three of them became believers. And I asked him afterwards, I said, how did this change you? He goes, honestly, I actually was homophobic. I didn't realize it, but God broke my heart for these people because I saw these kids suffering. So my encouragement is don't practice what you preach. Preach what you practice. Go out there. Or there's probably people in your own church you're not aware of who wrestle with this. Christians, maybe not Christians, just sit down with them and say, hey, how is our church doing? Do you feel loved here? What are some things you see that maybe we don't that could we can stay faithful to what scripture says? We're not compromising that, but be a more inviting place for people who are wrestling with their sexuality. 
Yeah, I love that. That's that's, that's great encouragement. Now, Sean, as we as we close, if someone's listening in, they want to connect with you, connect with um, the work that you're doing, um, the books that you're you're writing, and how you're speaking into a lot of this. What's the best way for them to do that? Probably the quickest place is just seanmcdowell.org. So I've got links to social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm actually on TikTok, Jason. I do a lot of stuff for students. It's fun. A lot of stuff in relationships. I have a YouTube channel, which is on worldview and apologetics. And there's tons of interviews on the LGBTQ topic. Some really good, powerful interviews are there. There's links to the books. There's a lot of free stuff as well. But probably seanmcdowell.org would be the place to start to see what resources are available for pastors. Perfect. And for our listeners, we'll have a link there in the show notes for this episode, so you can check that out. And again, Sean, man, it has been so good. What a refreshing conversation. Thank you for making the time uh, to be a part of this very, very important conversation that we're having and um, for just really encouraging people to love like Jesus. And um, and it just comes through in, in how you share. And it, it, that's kind of the the... the the grounding point of it of it all is that how can we live like Jesus and how can we as you said have these conversations how can we um, lean into these relationships and have an opportunity to introduce people to Jesus so thank you for that thanks for having me on Jason all right God bless you brother thank you for joining me for this episode of the church leaders podcast be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.